Yabba Dabba Doo and Ibudan 2. It's Southpaw Deep Space 9. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the show where fight nerds come to learn how to be regular nerds in that I, Angel Marti, take my co-host, Southpaw Sam, uh, into a journey of discovery with Star Trek Deep Space Nine going episode by episode of viewing, deconstructing, analyzing, and enjoying, hopefully. Uh, if you notice anything about my uh, voice in this episode compared to last episode, I am getting a little bit back, uh, getting over a cold uh, that I got while I was visiting a friend in Seattle. Uh, word of advice for viewers, don't visit Seattle in the winter <laughs> if you if you don't have like an, an, an immune system made out of uh, iron. And I certainly don't. And I'm a spoiled son baby from uh, who lives in Los Angeles. Sam, how are you this week? I'm good. I'm kind of liking this voice. It sounds like very like AM gold, like, you know, late night uh, radio where it's a soothing, like whispery voice before you play some love songs or something. I, I have had multiple people tell me they prefer they, that they <laughs> like this rasp. You're listening to Delilah. Uh, and well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, viewers. <laughs> Leave feedback. If you prefer sexy, cold voice Angel, I will uh, just make sure I like uh, lick a public payphone before every episode. So I'm always <laughs> sick. This is our special ASMR episode. Oh, oh my God. Yes. I'm going to be just like crunk, cr- crunkling. <laughs> crunkling is when Lil John does ASMR. Uh, okay. <laughs> crinkling tissue paper and stuff during the episode. Um, so. For those of you who uh, might already be familiar with the uh, episode order, we're actually going by the Netflix uh, episode order, which is a little bit out of sync with uh, what Memory Alpha has, uh, which which is like the authoritative wiki for Star Trek, and uh, what it is on episode on Paramount Plus. So the episode we are doing today is actually going to be a man alone. Uh, which was the second in the production order uh, after the pilot of Emissary. And uh, Sam, do you have any initial thoughts uh, for this episode that you want to talk about up top before we get go into a, a blow-by-blow pot, plot analysis? <laughs> yeah, maybe this is more uh, also the inverse of uh, not just fight nerds getting used to Star Trek fandom and lore, but also uh, Star Trek nerds learning to analyze Star Trek like it's a pro wrestling commentary or, you know, fight (laughs) play by play, something like that. So it's going to be a a, a merging of worlds like uh, Star Trek Generations. (laughs) Wait, so is Kirk or Picard pro wrestling in that in that analogy? No, that's an easy question. Kirk is pro wrestling. Like, I mean, he, he there are so many great episodes of TOS where he literally throws a drop kick and a flying crossbody. <laughs> he literally he does hit a flying crossbody on on an Andorian in one episode. <laughs> I think it's because I think it was because uh, Shatner trained with Gene LaBelle, and that was back in the '60s when they still treated wrestling like it was a real martial art. So yeah, in my in my head canon, Gene decided Shatner was a mark he could work and taught him like moves that. Like we're like he taught him a flying crossbody like it was a real fighting move. 
Well, most of his moves, right, were basically moves Hulk Hogan had, like especially <laughs> the double axe handle and the jumping double axe handle. Yes, there were there was a lot of uh, double axe handles in in the Kirk Fu uh, <laughs> fighting system. So as far as this episode goes, uh, my initial feeling was like, it's you know what? I don't know what it would have been like if I watched it in the order that, you know, is in canon. But watching this right after Emissary, which was long and very heavy and, you know, it felt very much like a cinematic event. This was like a nice change in tone and pace because it was like the first one where, OK, now it's like an episodic like this is like more comfortable. Now we're getting started. This is what like future episodes will look like. There's like a mini plot for this. And then there's like an overarching plot that will carry us through the series and the season. But also it felt like world building, like, oh, you're dropping some stuff that's going to happen here. That'll be seems like fixtures of the show. It was a nice change of pace from the intensity of Emissary, which was, you know, very intense, just plot wise, but emotionally like I watched it with my wife and even she had never seen any Star Trek before was like, damn. That one got to me because she was like, at the end, she's like, oh, I have a lot of like trauma that I'm always (laughs) living in that I'm choosing to live in. And it's like, oh, the trauma isn't making me be there. It's like, I don't want to get like uh, self-helpy, but she felt like she could do a lot for herself by letting go a lot of, of a lot of these things. Well, well, maybe we could do a spinoff podcast where we basically run like a, a self-help uh, MLM, but it's based in Star Trek. <laughs> As This episode, A Man Alone, opens, there is something brewing in Dr. Bashir's pants. uh, (laughs) Because whenever I watch early Deep Space Nine, specifically season one, anytime Dr. Bashir appears on screen, I like to just announce out loud to the empty room, And now for the adventures of Dr. Horny! (laughs) Because... Every moment, like, you know, I'm not going to spoil too much, but we do see some evolution in Dr. Bashir's character. But definitely the first few times you meet him, like, he is the most incel you know, character <laughs> that, like, ever inceled an incel. Uh, and so we open here with the, I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to just dismiss him as an incel, but it's just, like, very clear that, like, any person, any woman that hoves into his view that pre- that <laughs> that he views as like intellectually fascinating or like you know charming in any way, he very clearly develops romantic feelings too. So we open with him very, uh, you know, very awkwardly, but uh, not shyly, uh, you know, flirting with Dax as she uh does an altonian brain teaser which is some kind of like space simon because it involves like all of these uh patterns and uh and colors how much of that persona do you think is just part of the times like as far as like 90s tv writing like humor like how much of this was just like this is how you made funny characters you know cuz it, it seems like a lot of star trek this era relies a lot on like tropes and like you know, almost like alien species, uh, racial profiling, or even like with women, you know, there's lines about like, you know how women are, you know, a lot of these type of hammy stereotypes for jokes. Yeah, I mean, like, again, I feel like uh, because we're set again on this static setting, you know, of, of uh, a space station, 
there is there are some elements uh of deep space nine that sort of both choose to and are allowed to be a little bit more reminiscent of like a sitcom uh in the sense of like i mean yeah you're right at this you know this is also uh i like 93 was also kind of like the golden age of like sitcoms that were mostly about relationships you know you're like because you know you had seinfeld friends mad about you um so so i would and this was on upn at the time i'm trying to remember like what sitcoms were on upn at the time but (laughs) I really, the only thing that I watched on UPN was Star Trek when it still existed <laughs> and, and SmackDowns. So I can't remember yeah. what else was on it. it well, it's also interesting in the reverse of like, let's say on the next generation where you had the chief medical officer on the enterprise D uh, was mostly experiencing uh, romantic tension with uh, captain Picard, uh, except that one episode where she fucks a ghost uh, but that's 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 a golden nugget of of Star Trek if you haven't seen that one. But also, so it's like we have Bashir instead of being he's a chief medical officer of Deep Space Nine, but instead of being this like mother sort of older and nurturing and mature, he's a young swaggering, horny braggart. And uh, I I think that might have been. One of the different way I, I, you know, there there are many things about Bashir that sort of are that are helpful. I think, especially early on in the show, to be like, this ain't your daddy's Star Trek, and like, and, you know, <laughs> this isn't the Enterprise, and you know, we don't have we don't have a very subtle, you know, sort of energy between a uh, uh, Doctor Crusher and Picard. That's like our Doctor fucks. <laughs> So one of the things that we notice about Jadzia in that in this scene already is that, wow, is she infinitely patient? Or the fact that she's lived so many lifestyles and life lives, uh, as she definitely is more open and accepting of and less awkward around things like sexuality and attraction and romance. I think because we definitely have a different energy between like Kira and Bashir versus Dax and Bashir, even though both of them are not interested in him romantically or sexually. uh, Dax definitely just seems to have a much more uh, gentle and less irritated response to his energy than Kira does. And, and that's I think that's going to be reflected in her attitude with a lot of other characters too. So we actually end that scene with Cisco showing up and picking up Dax to go to dinner. And then after the opening credits, we move to uh, the scene with Odo uh, in the bar. It's definitely playing going back and forth between Odo and Dax because Odo then also talks about relationships. Going back to your previous comments about 90s and maybe, you know, Star Trek. Deep Space Nine is is trying to be a show for everybody, you know, something for everyone, right? So in dealing with relationships, um, Odo talks about himself as a a man. Then he talks about she and how couples, you know, and she, like as in women, can, you know, be bothersome or tiring. When Odo has no actual gender, and there's a conversation then about Dax and 
her gender fluidity, I think, with Cisco. So whether consciously or unconsciously, the show is already raising questions about essence versus the body, which will be interesting if later on Cisco or the show like explores more about the spiritual side of like, you are not necessarily your body. Yeah, we definitely have a contrast about like different aspects on relationships because so we see that the dinner that they're going to is really uh, basically Cisco and Jadzia's first conversation and Cisco really getting to know the new host of the Dax Symbian since the death of Curzon, who was his old friend and mentor. So this is this is like one of the things that establishes that uh, Dax carries on the memories and a lot of the consciousness, a lot of things from Curzon while still being a diff- like her own person. But there is a lot of fluidity there, as you say, and that's why Dax was sort of uh, before I mentioned it last week, but you know, Star Trek Discovery now has like actual, you know, in the text, trans and non-binary characters. But this was this was the this was what establishes uh, Dax as sort of being an entry point for a lot of trans and uh, gender non-conforming people as finding a lot of their early. Um, access point for a character with any kind of experience similar to them. And I believe, in fact, there was like a gay, I don't remember the name of it, but there was like some like gay culture magazine in, you know, at the time the show was on that did an article specifically about Dax. In the previous episode with Emissary, we saw that procedure where the the symbiont, yeah, goes over to the new host. So that wasn't then like a mind takeover. It wasn't like, the symbiont like taking over the the mind and the body of the host it's like they kind of share a consciousness how does that work yeah yeah it's like the a joined trill is a joined person like they're 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 they they simultaneously keep the most of the like the the dominant the, the dominant personality is that of the host so Chad Zia, but I, I guess it's really just the memories as a, is a good way to sort of summarize what it is that the symbiont carries from the previous host, because like uh, this, I don't, I don't remember, but it's like, the, for example, like Chad Zia might know how to play piano, but that's not just because, you know, Curzon knew how to play piano, but like Curzon, um, this isn't like too spoiler, but just like, you know, Curzon ends up revealed as like being very close to uh, spending a lot of time around Klingons. So Jadzia conveniently has a lot of knowledge of Klingon culture. That doesn't spoil any particular plot, but that's just something that comes in later. But uh, so that that's kind of that's kind of how it's treated. It's like Jadzia Dax is a different person from Curzon Dax, as, se- as who was a separate person from Emini Dax, who, you know, the previous host and was, who was a separate person from uh actually as a nice preview pretty soon in this season there will be an episode that sort of like has jadzia confronting aspects of all of her previous hosts so stay stay tuned for that one so this is kind of a contrast to the borg where it's also a symbiotic relationship but the borg just completely take you over oh yeah whereas this this isn't a takeover it's more of a sharing but the host really still maintains control yeah if anything 
if anything, this is the actual fulfillment of what the Borg promise, which is to say, they always say, your biological and technological distinctivenesses will be added to our own. But really what happens is that just you become biologically and technologically homogenized. <clears throat> capitalism but uh, but here it's like joining the joining of a symbiont with a a, a trill host is like actually like a mutually enriching it it is a symbiosis and not an assimilation it's mutual aid it's communism <laughs> yes yes exactly but then we see that cork and odo are observing a discordant interaction between chief miles o'brien and his wife keiko I must say, in Star Trek fandom, there's a lot of discourse around Keiko. So, what, also, she is another character that was first introduced on the Next Generation, but you know, she wasn't given a lot of uh, development there. So, really, this is a lot. This will, was a lot of people's first real meeting of Keiko. Yeah, I think Keiko is a good arc to show how Asian American expectations of representation has changed over time. Because back then, uh, I remember even Asians who didn't watch Star Trek or didn't care were just excited to see somebody Asian, you know, on TV. Whereas now, people who don't watch Star Trek, Asians who don't watch Star Trek are not going to mention her anymore because now she is more of like uh, the typical trope of the Asian wife to the white dude, right? So it shows like the expectations have moved from there where that was okay just because any representation was good, even if it wasn't the greatest representation. Whereas now it's not something like Asians are going to flex as something they're proud of. Yeah, we, we this was before the internet taught us to have an instant squicky vibe from white guys married to Asian women. <laughs> uh, but it is, yeah, it is. Um, so she was first introduced as Keiko Ishikawa on the Enterprise D uh, because on the Enterprise, she was a civilian botanist. Uh, because the Enterprise was the kind of place where you could do that because you were exploring strange new worlds. And uh, she gets married, becomes Keiko O'Brien. Uh, and then before, they're, they're actually her wedding to Miles is shown in the episode entitled Data's Day, where the actually like one of the parts of the A plot is uh, Data getting ready to uh, figure out how to deliver a speech at, at their wedding. Uh, so uh, just from the from the uh, get go, she's kind of an auxiliary to help uh, develop uh, to help us develop male characters. <laughs> but but at least but, I mean, it, it is interesting because because we do see her, especially in this episode, have be more like central to a plot, even though it is not the a plot. But it is about her like you're right, being a nagging wife. Uh, being a eventually, you know, like going from going from like us being a scientist to being a teacher, you know, out of concern for the children on you know, the station. So she, it's a very typical, you know, mother like nurturing role. Uh, so there's like there's definitely pluses and minuses to the whole character, both both as a product of its time and just in general. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us 
at patreon.com slash southpawpod. And how much of this was just also a way to introduce the plot of a school? There could have been a lot. There are a lot of things that that they sort of do right by Keiko with the writers because uh, they could have very much just forgotten Keiko, but they decided not to because they realized it was more interesting to have the story of how do we deal with somebody who moved for the sake of their marriage uh, instead for the sake of their spouse's career, because that's also a thing that a lot of women have had to deal with. So on the one hand, it sucks that they depict, you know, oh, you know, a woman moving, having to sacrifice, you know, her main career passion for the sake of her husband. But on the other hand, that's probably something a lot of viewers related to. Uh, and it just hit me as you were talking about like, why would they just, why would they need to justify having a school? And I was like, oh, right. What's another thing that you often see in any kind of old West town is the school marm, you know, having to make sure that the, uh, that the school children don't get caught in the, uh, you know, in the shootouts. I, I didn't even like think about that, but that is, I can't even, I don't even know if that, again, I don't even know out, out now if that was intentional, I'll have to look into it, but it does make a lot, a lot, a lot of sense. So it is, it is them taking something that was already there for that was convenient to them to like continue this frontier, uh, anal, uh like wild west frontier analog. Yeah, there's nothing written about her that has to be Asian. She just happens to be, right? But she is more living up to this type of old Western trope, even to the point of like, she's the school marm who loves flowers. Like, that is very much a thing if you've ever watched those like Little House on the Prairie type shows, right? So, yeah, it could be worse. She could be the Asian on Deep Space Nine with a pig farm where they store the dead bodies. <laughs> She could, she could be, she, it, it could have been space deadwood like that. <laughs> but then in the midst of all this, we see a mysterious Bajoran man in Quark's bar playing Dabo and Odo immediately recognizes him and uh, starts to uh, rough him up and say that he can't be on the station anymore. So it turns out that the man who showed up is named Ibudan, which I will say personally is the most fun name to say uh, of any Star Trek character because I keep saying it to myself the whole time I watch this episode. Ibudan, but apparently he was he was a man who lived on board Deep Space Nine during the Cardassian occupation when it was called Terok Nor, and uh, he was uh, somebody who smuggled medical supplies and black market goods to Bajor, and. Odo notes that some people consider consider him a hero, and uh, but he sees him as a ruthless profiteer and, of course, a troublemaker, which is you know the biggest sin to Odo. So now this uh, you know now we're really like this is some meat we can chew on. I think as leftists like analyzing this in in modern times. Well, what I also noticed just two episodes in is. There's like the main plot and, and uh, conflict, but also a philosophical question. Like Emissary did that. It had a plot. It had this conflict, but it asked these philosophical questions about time and experience, right? Whereas this episode, it has that as the main plot, but then it also asks the philosophical question about justice. What is justice? 
but they're playing to that binary of like mob justice versus like some you know supreme court kind of like u.s law and order type of justice but i don't remember which character but they do bring up that justice is subjective based on the context of the culture and and the situation (laughs) because the captain of deep space nine is a black man he does not take kind of security just randomly roughing people up (laughs) i would say uh (laughs) again again this is definitely well i was about to say this is definitely like me sort of backwardsly projecting um uh you know our modern critical view of the police onto this but this was 1993 this was not you know that far dispersed you know far from like rodney king and the la riots i think like you know definitely there was a critical eye on t on on the police like even at this moment uh, and, and this benefit, I think, wow. Okay. This is, I, I love, I love how like readdressing like stuff that I watched as a kid is now like letting me bring so much up because I'm thinking that this actually benefited from it being in 1993 before the post nine 11, like, you know, beatification of the police along with firefighters, because yeah, this was, this was before we had to like, you know, respect all cops is like, you know, there are first responders, but like this was around the time of the LA riots and like people were thinking, hmm, you know, maybe police abuse is a thing. So to get back to the actual show, so Cisco's like, what are you doing? Um, let me see if I can do it. Ooh, ooh, especially with my uh, uh, cold voice, maybe I can really do the <clears throat> Commander, laws change depending on who's making them. Cardassians one day, Federation the next, but justice is justice. And as long as I'm in charge of security, and Cisco says, if you can't work within the rules, I'll find someone who can't. So, so, so Odo definitely tries to position himself as the arbiter of justice, even though, you know, his role is institutional. Are his clothes a part of his body? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He, uh, he, he definitely like, uh, Sometimes there are like little gag scenes that like help like uh, explain like how a character works. And I can't tell, I can't remember which episode uh, it, but it's, it's not like a, a major plot spoiler, but there's another scene in another episode where he talks about how he like uh, sometimes will uh, make part of himself to form like a mug. Uh, so <laughs> he can, because, because it's established that he, he doesn't need to eat or drink, but in order to like fulfill the social obligation, like to sort of perform the expected uh, pantomime of being a humanoid passing. Yeah. He'll make himself like appear to be drinking coffee out of a mug, but it's him just like, you know, making part of himself look like a mug and then making part of himself fill the mug with a liquid. <laughs> and um, uh, so, so like wearing clothes, you know, and wearing a uniform, he like, and just even having hair, all of his like mannerisms and a lot of his, per- I mean, you could say that most of his personality is, and you put it right, you know, trying to pass. It is performance. I mean, he even said that, I believe, either in this episode or in Emissary, he literally says the term passing, that he's passing as, uh, you know, one of them or, you know, but he doesn't know who he is. But one thing I appreciated about Deep Space Nine and this character is even though he could do all those amazing things, at least up to this point, he doesn't seem super strong. Like I, I totally expected when he was like trying to rough up people, like he could just lift them over his head and throw them with one hand, which typically is like the alien trope in Star Trek, you know, but 
he he didn't seem like Klingon strong or like any stronger than a human. Yeah. Vulcans also. Vulcans are very strong, although they're they 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 try not to use their strength. Um uh yeah, no, I mean like I think again the writers were very you know, I will I will I will say this very often, but I think you know the writers were very competent about like what makes a show interesting and that means like don't overpower, you know, <laughs> characters. And so, yeah, there's um there's there's limitations on Odo's shape-shifting ability, you know, he can't make anything with a, you know, more or less mass than him. Uh, he can just change his volume, but not his mass. Uh, and yeah, he can't like turn himself into like a machine or something. So yeah, he's not like super strong. It's like, it's like shape-shifting is his deal. And, you yeah. know, he has other weaknesses. Besides. Also, also they give him this, which uh, um, comes into play in this episode. He has to uh, revert to a liquid state periodically. He can only hold a solid shape for so long. It sounds very much like uh, when you're playing some kind of role-playing game, you have to think about power scale and, like, game balance. Right. Like, for example, Jadzia, uh, you know, again, she has, like, all the memories of, like, you know, how to, of, like, the Klingon martial arts that Curzon learned, but her strength is constrained by the body of Jadzia Dax, who is, you know, still young and healthy, but not super strong. Uh, so they they definitely, you know, we don't, we don't have like a bunch of like Superman, you know, planet killer characters in this, like, because, <laughs> because, because flaw, I mean, part of this might be just my creative opinion because I've been conditioned by shows like this and like Babylon five, but like the flaws are what make the characters interesting. So we, so after, after Odo makes that very cryptic, uh, uh, remark about like justice is justice and getting, um, admonished by Cisco to work within the rules, we then see that Ibudan is getting a massage in a hollow suite, uh, and then he gets stabbed. Now it's a forensic show. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now, now we've got a murder mystery. No, actually, it does become a forensic show, right? With Bashir coming in later doing a little bit of crime investigation. Yeah. So then we go to commercial. I, I remember, I remember re actually liking commercial breaks because that was when I would go to pee. And now, now I just like, when do I pause? Uh, Jake and Nog are friends now, but Nog is a bad influence. And they, uh, th he gets Jake to like, like harmlessly poison some, uh, uh, couple's food. So they start turning neon colors, uh, uh that <laughs> it, one part of me thinks like, oh, they say it's like a harmless prank, but part of me just imagines them in sick bay, like just having some like very awful genetic, like level, uh, after effects afterwards that we don't see. Um, but here's where, uh, Keiko is like, Rawr, these these boys need a school uh which i mean she does it she does it in a way that like rosalind chow you know definitely tries her damnedest to make sure that that keiko is seen as like uh, that that it that the energy coming off of keiko isn't just nagging but like she cares uh, like she she's doing she's she chooses to do this be not because you know she want she feels like a, a need to go on an authority trip but it's like she wants to see these kids develop it does it is like the lack of support for children on the station is like a circumstance of it being you know uh 
uh, a, initially a purely military installation run by the Cardassians. And, you know, that it, it is, it is a way she brings up the enterprise and it is, it is actually, you know, very, again, it's very smart and useful that it like, you know, uh, contrast the setting of deep space nine from the setting of the, of the next generation that, you know, again, it's a much more cold, barren, less welcoming, uh, less kind, uh, world that they're trying to make. So, you know, in the, in the aftermath of its occupation and, uh, and so it's, it is miles. I, it, it is miles idea that she opened a school. So you, you, Again, after all of that, we are then left to wonder, it's like, well, why is that Miles' first reaction? <laughs> like, oh, you know what my wife should do? She should be um, a teacher. But I guess it works out. <laughs> it's one of those like husbands looking for something for their wife to do with their free time. Oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you join a knitting circle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. By the way, is it, is, has it been made clear to you now that people definitely fuck in these hollow suites, Sam? <laughs> that was uh I think the next generation really they never like showed that did they but they always seem to imply that you know a lot of times people use this kind of like a uh, porn room. Well on the next generation there was definitely much more like oh you know the holodeck is like a playground like a theme park you know you used to be a cowboy or Sherlock Holmes and I think this is where like I mean clearly you know people were like yeah, if we had holiday technology, people would use it to fuck. Because the, I mean, I mean, even in this at this point, you know, we've already seen how the major innovator, the the first wave of innovation of any mode of technology of entertainment <laughs> technology is always it's always porn. I mean, por uh, uh, you know, porn helped develop the VHS. It helped develop the internet. So it is. Uh, Definitely a very, I mean, and now, you know, we like, there's plenty of VR porn already, you know, we're on our way to that. So again, this is like, definitely like past becoming prologue, uh, <laughs> like, like the future looking backwards ends up just like become forecasting it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that's a more efficient way to put it but uh there is an episode later where cork just that like offers somebody like if they uh, a trip to a hollow suite is like do you want to do you want a free session in the hollow suite uh, does your species have sex so it's like deep space nine was definitely like this this was where they were like okay we're gonna stop like wink nudging about it and just say like yeah this is this is like what it's for <laughs> but on the station you have to pay to use the holodeck uh, I guess I think I, I we touched upon it briefly uh in the last episode, but uh, but it it is never fully explained where the Federation officers on the station get their money to pay, or if they have. I think either either this is how it's supposed to work, or this is just the most logical head cannon that has come out after the fact but i think the uh like starfleet officers living on deep space 9 don't have to pay for like rent or like their basic needs of survival since it is a starfleet installation or the holodeck huh i think so or within the case of quark since he's not like he he he's like an outside businessman i think outside businesses that are not like federation operated or operated by federation members can like 
lease space on the station. They pay rent to the Federation somehow. Um, it's very nebulous because I think this is one of the things where it's like Star Trek was created by Gene Roddenberry, who by the account of his late wife, Majel Barrett Roddenberry, he's, she said at a, at a convention before her death that Gene did identify as a communist, uh, specifically in the model of China. Uh, so, uh, so I guess he was like, you know, a pro black Panther Maoist, but because he was writing in America in the sixties during the cold war, and because it be, it then subsequently became, you know, the franchise property of, of, you know, NBC and then Paramount Pictures and Star Trek never was going to come out and say that it, that the Federation was socialist. It's just, it's not a thing that was going to happen if it was going to be anything that had the staying power that it has. Obviously, there's a lot of subtext. And like, even, I mean, there is text. I mean, like, like Picard says in first contact, you know, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. Uh, Kirk says it in uh, that in Star Trek four, the voyage home. So even before deep space nine was on the air, uh, he does, he does mention to a 20th century, um, you know, civilian that, that money doesn't exist where he comes from. So it's very, it's, it's established that, Money doesn't exist within the Federation, within Starfleet. But obviously there is some kind of exchange uh, that exists when, as far as like, you know, uh, between Starfleet, uh, between the Federation and other interstellar states and economies. In summary, it's like they never fully explain how money works in on Deep Space Nine. So there will be a lot of contradictions, uh, you know both within Deep Space Nine and between different works of track. Yeah, I mean, the concept of money, like I just uh, released a six-parter about personal finance. Like, you know, just because you're writing about uh, sci-fi, you know, there's some stuff you should leave a mystery because you just won't right. understand it well enough <laughs> to ever do the world building for that. And money, these writers, there's just no way they will understand how money works in the future because they don't even understand how money works now. I mean, just going off of basic economic understandings and rules about like, you know, we don't even have to go into Marx. It could just be uh, even under a capitalist paradigm. Once you have something like a replicator and a holodeck, it becomes a game changer because the whole idea of money is like you have to have some kind of scarcity. So you have to have some kind of ledger system to figure out, you know, limited goods. But if things are no longer limited, then you no longer need money. Like if the replicator existed in this world, our economy would collapse. It's just like how they said, you know, if there's like a meteor that is made of gold that crash lands here, it would, would destroy our economy because there would just be now too much gold in the world, right? So, you know, I think they just came up with two different ideas, replicators and then no money. But one actually leads to the other. When you have replicators, you can't have money. With that said, with the holodeck, and replicators like that, you could have gatekeeping where it's still physical things that are inaccessible to everybody. So then people who have access to that can live in this space communism where there is no money, but people who are outside of that system still have to use uh, some kind of exchange system. Whether the writers understood this or not, 
you know, I think them not explaining it too much still allows for room for people like me to read into it. Right. <laughs> if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Before we get to that, uh, the next spinoff, uh, South, Southpaw D- DS9 economics, <laughs> we discover the real scandal at the center of, uh, at the center of this plot, which is they investigate Ibudan's dead body. They investigate the scene where he was murdered. They find no, uh, DNA evidence of anybody being in that hollow suite except Ibudan. And then, they find that the door to the hollow suite was only opened twice when Ibudan entered and when his killer left. And then they investigate his ship and, and they find that Ibudan had a meeting with Odo scheduled uh, before he, he was killed. Odo himself says the only way that there could have been no DNA left and there could have been somebody who entered, who left without entering, would be if the killer had been a shapeshifter like him, uh, who was able to move, get in through the cracks of the door, like Ivan Ooze. <laughs> well, it also shows uh, Odo is very principled, even though he basically throws himself under the bus because his sense of justice is so strong, he still has to do it. Yes, he... Uh, He's, he does say in his own words that it is a very neat package that he is able that all of this evidence is there uh, to frame to frame him. Kira asks him if he has an alibi, and like I mentioned before, uh, he doesn't because he his alibi is that during he, the, during the time of the murder he was in his liquid state in a bucket. Uh, so, uh, there's no way you, like he, you could say, he could say like, I was regenerating, but it's like, oh, if you were in a liquid state, you could have very easily been, uh, able to slide through the door. Uh, also, also, I, I think it bears noting, uh, just in general for the context for, you know, people who might not be aware at this point, uh, both in the show and in Star Trek in general, uh, we don't know what Odo species is and we don't know how it works. So him saying that he has to regenerate every 18 hours could, you know, both to the, to, to any of the viewers could very much have just been, you know, something made up. And he sort of realizes that, that that's why it doesn't really work as an alibi. After the news of Ibudan, uh, breaks out, uh, we have Bajorans on Deep Space Nine, uh, starting to, uh, doubt whether whether or not uh odo is innocent and he was framed uh, it seems like deep space nine at least everybody sort of accepts everybody in the crew accepts from the get-go that odo was framed because they all being his co-workers trust him implicitly but the bajorans on the station are not uh as confident Especially because it then it is revealed that Odo was a security officer. Well, actually, no, it was it was revealed. It was it was said as much uh, in in emissary as well. But it comes into play here. Odo 
was a security officer on the station during the Cardassian occupation. He worked for the Cardassians. There is no reason, no reason why anybody who is not like his closest coworkers should trust that he wasn't willing to just kill a former member of the Bajoran resistance. And, and just as a personal opinion, I sort of think it's a bit of a plot hole that Kira doesn't hate him, uh, you know, for the same reasons at the beginning of the show. I mean, like, obviously she doesn't like him, but it's like, I'm, I am surprised that she's not as aggressively. I mean, again, maybe that's just her trying to be professional, but, uh, I always found, I, I always thought myself that Kira probably should be, uh, like very much in, um, in the same camp. Knowing what we know now, it very much seemed like her and Oda were on a team against Cisco and the Federation, right? Especially in the first episode. But then finding out that he was on the opposite side of her, and it's like, wait, why are you two on the same side? So I don't know. Going forward, I guess it'll become less of an issue because you just expect them as a crew to get along. But I think especially at the beginning, it's more glaring, right? That kind of getting along and getting together should be part of the story arc. Right. You know, like uh, now, now it's like we have, we're, we're, there are a lot of different layers being added on to how we view Odo in this episode, because it's like now, not only is he, does he seem to have a bit of a vigilante streak to him, but like also like he's, pro- he, he's a Nuremberg defense case. Like he probably <laughs> was like, views it as just, just following orders that he worked for the, for the Cardassians of all people. Well, to further complicate it more, there's also a narrative that was played upon in the first episode and also with this one that he's like basically the ultimate minority on Bajor, you know, and also an immigrant because there's only one of him. He's not from there. Right. So there's also this outcasted uh, minority angle to Odo as well, which is why he also seems persecuted like. There's a lot of things going on with him. And also on top of the fact that he's gender fluid and, you know, even like uh, identity fluid, you know? Well, well, his, he's, he's sex fluid, but he <laughs> literally, um, and he's a fluid. <laughs> he actually very firmly identifies as male. So he's set on a gender pretty quickly, probably because he realized that it was more advantageous to present as male observing, observing humanoids. He's just like, I'm going to be on the winning team. I'm going to make myself a light skinned male. <laughs> Throughout the two episodes, there's a lot of sexist statements that have been thrown around. So in this, especially in this world, and especially more so than in Star Trek The Next Generation, it seems like those types of more, quote unquote, primitive behaviors exist more on the station. So it would make sense for him that if he wanted power, he was like, oh, the palest, (laughs) malest person is going to have power. Uh, Oh, I love the pale male catalog. Um... (laughs) But also he literally... When we're speaking about fluid, he can also turn into a fluid. That's how he can ooze underneath stuff, right? Yeah, so. yeah. That's again, like that's why he has to be in a bucket. Uh, <laughs> he, he is literally two tiers in a bucket. Um, so, so what happens is the the Bajorans are in Quark's bar, uh, and they're they're throwing accusations at Odo and and doubting him. But then Quark, for some reason, uh, decides to uh, to defend him. So to speed ahead. We later on find out, dun dun dun, that uh, there was some cloning being done, and the actual being that was murdered was a clone. 
the Ibudan that was killed was not actually Ibudan himself. Yeah. So you need to know that to make the full Casablanca reference because Quark is Odo's enemy, which was set up in the first episode. Nobody hates Odo as much as him, but then he's also the first one to defend him because there's some kind of weird mutual respect that Odo, he literally says, is no collaborator, which references this idea of Nazi collaborators. And on top of like the whole show kind of having like this North African vibe, right, which is very much what Casablanca is, and then that they spend a lot of time at this bar, which is also very much like Casablanca and that whole line about friendship with the enemy who's also a police member. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. But then ultimately, there's also the cloning thing. It's like forbidden science that Cardassians were doing. It's this like parallel to Nazi eugenics, right? It's the same idea. So it all kind of connects to Nazis and fascism and eugenics and Casablanca. This show seems very much like it's going to play with those themes a lot. And in this episode, it really wasn't even subtle about it. It really was just like right on the nose. So going along with Cardassians being like Nazis, it also seems like there's another parallel, especially made poignant in this episode with the Ferengi. They seem like they're very much like uh, American conservatives because they, you know, said a lot of like typical conservative reactionary statements when they were speaking to Keiko about schools and women and also about dog eat dog capitalism. A comparison modern scholars have drawn from Earth history likens the Ferengi to the ocean-going Yankee traders of 18th and 19th century America, sir. From the history of my forebears, Yankee traders. Who in this case sailed the galaxy in search of mercantile and territorial opportunity. And are these scholars saying that the Ferengi may not be unlike us? Hardly, sir. I believe the analogy refers to the worst quality of capitalists. The Ferengi are believed to conduct their affairs of commerce on the ancient principle caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. Yankee traders, I like the sound of that. So uh, this is, uh, now I'm going to dig into some of my experience as a bona fide Trekkie. When I was was at Star Trek Las Vegas uh, this past August, I was uh, uh, at the Deep Space Nine panel where Armin Shimmerman was uh, uh, speaking. And a fan asked him about uh, how he felt uh, about some of the, some of the people who had concluded that like Ferengi were all like, uh, anti-Semitic tropes, uh, because, you know, large ears and, you know, bulbous noses and being these sort of money grubbing goblins, you know, uh, but, uh, what he said was, uh, you know, number one, I'm Jewish, uh, uh, Max Gredenchik, who played Rom, uh, is Jewish, uh, Aaron Eisenberg, the late Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog, is Jewish. Rick Berman, who was like the producer of the show and one of the writers was Jewish. And um, none of them felt like it was uh, meant meant to be anti-Semitic that really the Ferengi, I, I forgot his specific words, but he was like, yeah, they're, they're, they're really a parody of American conservatives. You know, I think he, I can't remember if he said conservatives or like right wingers or whatever, but just like, but, but uh, they're definitely, I think Iris Stephen Bear, uh, uh, who was a, uh, uh, you know, eventually becomes one of the main showrunners on the show in the later seasons. Also, specifically said it's like like the Ferengi are supposed to be 20th century Americans. Like they're definitely like that is the main thing that's that that was that was uh, uh, come to mind when they were when when they were you know sort of 
figuring out what qualities are like played up in the Ferengi. The rest of this episode, so I mean, we already talked about how it ends, but it, but it, what's what's interesting is that like as the sort of second half of this episode plays out, the tension is that as Odo deals with being suspect in for murdering a Bajoran, he uh, is attacked in a way that is kind of seen as racial. Like he comes into his office and it's been vandalized and they spray painted the word shifter. <laughs> it, even though he ends up, you know, uh, uh, exonerating himself, it is interesting to sort of think about what this episode has to say about like police and authority and like when you are a racially marginalized person that is still given uh uh you know institutional power like it kind of feels a little bit like it's sort of like the be feel sorry for black cops kind of sensibility going on there <laughs> and i want i wanted to see if you took away the same thing you know i think odo even being a shapeshifter, right? It fits that he's a confusing character. And I think they're saying a lot of things with him. But ultimately, I got the sense of like centrism in this episode. There's stuff that's very progressive about this episode, right? And about the show. But as far as like the mechanics of the show and as far as actually like the moral compass of the show, it was all about centrism. It's about like, you know, reform and working within the system. And, you know, there's either working within the system or there's mob justice, right? There's no such thing as revolutionary type of justice, right? Because a literal mob of Bajorans ends up coming like for Odo before they finally find, they find, he finally, like they finally reveal like where Ibudan himself has been hiding. And what was the point of Ibudan like framing Odo? What was he ultimately trying to get out of this episode? I guess it's just, oh, you know, Odo, you know, arrested me previously. So I'm just going to frame him for murder as revenge. It's kind of a, it's kind of a shallow uh, I think uh, justification for the grudge because like they have this great thread of like, you know, what do we can, do we consider Odo a collaborator because he worked under an, under the authority of these oppressors. But like, I, again, they, they, like you said, the centrist cop out where it's like, oh, but like the guy who, who raised all of these questions was also a bad man himself. So then you don't even have to contemplate the questions he raised, you know, like, like Killmonger, you know, in Black Panther. It's like, oh, because he like, you know, he enjoyed killing people in Afghanistan and Iraq. We have, we have license to completely ignore, uh, the legitimate questions about, uh, the legacy of imperialism and, and, and black slavery, uh, throughout the world. Um, so, so yeah, it is a bit of a cop out that it's just like, oh, you know, revenge against the cop who busted me <laughs> when, when I think it, it, it would have been interesting if maybe, you know, Ibudan had a bit of a more, uh, personal grudge and like maybe a pattern of like going after collaborators. Um, I, th I think in, you said earlier about how, uh, you know, again, one of the many contradictions under capitalism that exists that within Deep Space Nine, you can have these kind of progressive and then kind of pro status quo ideas, which I guess is just what is allowed to exist under the, you know, the capitalist mode of production of entertainment uh, in the United States, because you have all these great questions of 
you know, what is the role of, you know, how do we, how do we view people who, uh, aid and abet oppressors when they are oppressed in some way themselves, but then they have, but then the answers presented are cop-outs. What's interesting though, is in this world, even if you kill a clone, that's still considered murder. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things that I find really interesting about this episode is how they just really, uh, uh, graze against like a whole other plot about like cloning and you know all of the traditional philosophical and existential questions uh about cloning because it's like at the end of the episode in the like the captain's log he's like oh the clone that it's like they grew bashir like grows a new clone by accident out of a tissue sample that he that he gets from the crime scene he does the forbidden science yeah to solve the crime but then they're like oh by the way the clone has gained sentience and it's like what like okay so there's just like this new ibudan who's gonna be given all the same you know like it's just taken for granted that he's just gonna be given all the rights and and privileges of a sentient being without any kind of discussion about i mean it, it is so funny how that that's just like that's reduced to a like I mean I guess it's because it it is done to death like in so many other uh um works of fiction that deal with cloning but like just to have it be a by the way the clone's you know happy living his own life in sunny Florida uh it's one of the weird mind-bogglingly like slapdash elements of this episode like a lot of a lot you know throughout the show like a lot of things are done with so much like thoughtfulness and consideration that it is funny to have such a big like just hanging thread that doesn't get picked up like we never ibudan never comes back this is purely a villain of the week uh episode and and especially viewing it from the context of somebody who's seen the whole show like me like it it that part really stands out I think we also have to recognize that this was a show for network TV following the 20 something odd episode format. So it's, it's a lot of episodes that they have to write. So it's not going to be as tight as like cable shows that are only 10 episodes. Yeah. No, I mean, it gets at, later on as like they pick like what are some of the big like main through line stories, things start to tighten up. But especially in the first season where they're still sort of, you know, very much like, you know, episode of the week kind of thing. You're right. You know, there are just things that are just kind of not everything. Not everything is laid uh, uh, a, as expertly as it could be. Now, let's finish on a lighter note. Sure. Because there's this alien who's like an extra. <laughs> Usually you think of actors as extras, yep. but this time it's an alien extra that keeps popping up in this episode, in the last episode. And he's this alien that looks like a bullfrog. His name is Morn, which is an anagram for Norm. Oh! Yep, yep. <laughs> he's, he's the resident barfly, much like the one from Cheers. That was very much intentional. So he is meant to be a mascot for this show, or the bar at least. Yeah, he never speaks, mostly because the makeup prosthetic doesn't really have an articulated mouth, but that becomes part of the gag. But, uh... Uh, uh, Norm, I mean, Morn is, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a very reliable gag and you'll, <laughs> you'll come to love him even more as the show goes on. Uh, and, and, uh, they, that we have seen, uh, you know, what's funny is that we have seen some Lurians, 
uh, that's the name of Morn species, appear in uh, Star Trek Discovery now. And so it'll be interesting to see if we ever if we ever get to see what one of them looks like when their mouth is moving. <laughs> yeah, he's already been useful in this episode to set up a couple of like, you know, visual gags. Yep. Let's let's end on your joyful discovery of Morn. <laughs> so if you liked this episode, uh, please uh, support the Southpaw Network on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash southpawpod. You'll not just be supporting this, but you'll be supporting the Prime Southpaw Podcast, The Fight Study, uh, Pride Never Die, uh, Working Stiff, uh, a lovely community of podcasts and podcasters just looking to create content that uh, helps uplift and liberate people. So our next episode uh, that we will be doing, again, just to uh, remind people, we're going in the Netflix episode order because probably more people have Netflix than Paramount+. Plus. So the next episode uh, we're going to do is going to be past prologue. Stay tuned, uh, and we will catch you next time on Southpaw Deep Space Nine. No, you got to close this out with the music. Can you close this out with the music? Uh, yeah. Ba-na-na-na. Ba-na-na-na.